church saw that there was much in this prophetic book that spoke directly of Christ, that had uh, many, many prophecies that were picked up in the New Testament and, and applied directly to Christ. And yet, although Isaiah is full of good news, it is also full of dark chapters as well. It struggles with the, the sinfulness of the people of God, and it is a book of both judgment, uh, but also salvation. And as we come to the first chapter of Isaiah, we, we do begin on a dark note. We see that the people of God are caught fast in their sin, rebellious against the Lord. And yet, within this chapter, we have one of the, one of the most wonderful gospel promises where there will be the restoration of the people of God and the forgiveness of sins. And what I want, the doctrine I want to put before us tonight is this, that the Christian is called to serve and worship the Lord with their whole heart, engaging in repentance from sin and faith in the cleansing work of God in Christ. Uh, just a, a few words on the historic situation of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is a 8th century major prophet. By major prophet, we don't mean that the minor prophets are of any less significance. It's just that the major prophets are much bigger. Uh, Isaiah is 66 chapters as opposed to a book like Amos, which is only nine chapters long. Uh, he lived in Jerusalem and he had an extensive ministry and, as I've already said, spoke of Christ very much. And so as we look at chapter 1, we can break down the passage into three different parts. The first would be uh, rebellion, verses 2 to 9. Secondly, rejection, verses 10 to 15. And then finally, repentance in verses 16 to 20. So let us start with the first section, rebellion, verses 2 to 9. The prophet begins by using legal imagery, legal language, when he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Any Israelite who knew their Hebrew Bible well, who knew the Pentateuch, they would have immediately thought about the Song of Moses in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. And it's in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy where Moses himself begins by saying, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear my, the words of my mouth. And it is a, a song that recounts how God has uh, adopted his people Israel, how he found her in the wilderness, how he raised her up and gave her so many blessings. Uh, but sadly, it's also a song of judgment, prophetically speaking to the fact that the people of God are going to rebel and eventually they're even going to be led away into exile. And so when we hear this language, it automatically lets us know uh, the prophet is bringing a legal case. Very often we think that the, the prophets are those who are going to speak about future events, and they do do, they do, do that. Uh, but they are also covenant preachers. They are preaching the Mosaic Covenant and, and bringing it to bear upon the people, calling the people back to repentance. And so Isaiah is going to preach about the covenant blessings and covenant curses. And he begins by speaking to the great privilege that the people of God had, that Israel had. He says, children, this is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Now, when, when God entered into a covenant with his people, it wasn't 
uh, wasn't merely that God was going to be a, a covenant Lord to His people, although He was that, but He was also going to be a Father to His people. And He lavished upon Israel blessing upon blessing such that none of the other nations of the world had experienced. And that's going to make their rebellion so much uh, more grievous. Because they're rebelling not simply against a, a covenant Lord, but they're, co- they are sinning and rebelling against the very Father that has raised them up. We know that uh, in our own lives, even, even the ber- very best Father... They're, they're not perfect. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to have uh, failings. But when it comes to Israel, they cannot complain that they, they did not have a perfect father. They had a, they had a father and they had a God who always was doing what was best for his children, was always making sure they got what they needed exactly when they needed it. But they rebelled. And this, this points to a clear uh, breach of the covenant. Uh, John Calvin in his commentary on Isaiah speaks about how this is uh, monstrous to, to rebel against a father. He says, A child who is ungrateful to his father is therefore a double monster, but a child who is ungrateful to a kind and generous father is a threefold monster. And it's interesting that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 21 that if there is a rebellious son among the people of Israel. That rebellious son is to be brought before the elders and they are to stone him. They are to execute him. We'll see that a little bit further on in the passage. But we also see that this rebellion has led to stupidity to the point where Isaiah is bringing in the illustration of an ox and of a donkey. And he's saying you can look at the ox, you can look at the donkey, and see that even though it doesn't have the highest intelligence level, it knows its master. It understands when it's time to eat. It will obey the the voice of their master. But Israel, the covenant people of God, the ones who have received all these blessings, they're not even measuring up to the IQ of, of a donkey or of an ox. It's a terrible, terrible situation. They don't know the Lord. We even see that as a loving father, God has brought about punishment on his people. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, at the end of, end of the book of Deuteronomy, we have a, a chapter where God is going to put forth the blessings and curses of the covenant. And he, he pretty much says, if you walk in my ways, if you are my obedient people, I'm going to bless you abundantly more than, more than anyone else on the face of the earth. But if you rebel against me, what I'm going to do is bring covenant enforcement. I'm going to bring uh, fatherly discipline upon you. Not for the purpose of utterly destroying you, but for the purpose of calling you back to myself. And so what we see in this first chapter is that covenant enforcement has been taken place. God has been slowly and graciously bringing in judgment upon his people for the purpose of calling them back. We see that it's a a people laden with iniquity, evildoers. And then we get down to verse 5 and we see God asking, Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head. And it speaks about no soundness, there's bruises, there's sores, there's raw wounds. 
Isaiah is giving us the, the picture of someone who has just been beaten black and blue uh, by this covenant judgment. And the, the historical context would be that there are foreigners who are coming up uh, against the people of God, uh, destroying the surrounding cities, destroying even some of its people. And they're not taking the hint that this is God calling them back to repentance. We see that their sin has led them to a place of theological stupidity. Uh, An illustration that comes to mind would be if, let's say, you were walking throughout the woods and you you came up to a very tall tree and you see a a man sitting up on a branch and you, you wonder what he's doing up there. And then you notice that this man takes a saw in his right hand and starts sawing the very branch that he's sitting on. You would say, sir, what are you doing? You, you are going to hurt yourself. Uh, there is going to be irreparable damage to your body with every stroke of that saw. You must stop. And yet that's exactly what the people of God are doing. With every rebellion, with every sin, they just continue to saw the very branch, the very support that they have. We get down to verses 8 and 9. It says... That the daughter of Zion has become like a lodge and a cucumber field. It just means that uh, Zion has become like a, like a shack sitting out in the middle of a field. That the, the slightest wind is going to blow over. There's no support. And then finally we get to verse 9 where it says that it is uh, only the sheer grace of God that these people have not been utterly wiped out. Otherwise they would become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And this shows that Isaiah is uh, he's familiar with the book of Genesis. He's familiar with the, with the account of Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed. And I think most, most people even nowadays are, are somewhat familiar with, with that account. And we find out in the scriptures that uh, the sins of Sodom are, are primarily twofold in the scriptures. The first would be that they were uh, known for their, for their sexual morality, primarily homosexuality. But then also we find out in the book of Ezekiel that uh, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were also engaged in a great deal of, of social injustice, that they were not treating the poor uh, correctly. And for both of those reasons, God brought judgment upon, upon them, raining down fire and sulfur from heaven. And there was nothing left. And, and Isaiah is saying, it's, it's the sheer grace of God that we have not been utterly wiped away from the face of the earth. So that is the rebellion. Let's now turn to the rejection. There's a, there's a clear link between verses 9 uh, to verse 10. We've got Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 9, and then we've got Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 10. But what is amazing is that the prophet is applying uh, the term Sodom and Gomorrah now to the, to the covenant people of God. You, you rulers of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah, They've, they've reached a point of rebellion that is uh, unspeakable. And we see in verses 10 to 15 that God is rejecting something. And that something is the worship of the people of God. God is rejecting that. He says, what is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of your burnt offerings. I don't delight in the bulls. When you, when you come before me, I'm going to hide my eyes. When you pray to me, I'm not going to hear you. Now, why, 
Is it, is it that the, the Lord has not commanded these sacrifices? That He hasn't commanded His people to be a people of prayer? No, of course not. It is that the people of God have turned the worship of God into something uh, merely external. They have reached the point where they believe that worship is in some way uh, manipulative. That if they go through the motions, if they uh, bring their sacrifices, that God is going to bless them. Uh, That was very common in the surrounding nations, especially the the Canaanite religions, where they would simply go through the motions and then expect the blessing to fall upon them. And yet when we come to the Scriptures, when you are worshiping the living and true God, you you never come before Him in order to to wrench something out of His hands. You, You come before Him in worship and praise out of gratitude for what He has already given. But they are not doing that. And so he is saying, I want that to stop. I'm going to re- reject that. And unfortunately, very, very often in the, in the visible church today, and perhaps even uh, sometimes in our own hearts, we know that it is easy to do this. It is easy to, to go through the motions, to uh, come to church, to sit under the preaching of the word, but perhaps not give it very careful thought, to, to sing the praises of God and yet our minds be elsewhere. And yet we we see in this passage that God does require not only the the external act, that is required, but it's also a heart. He he wants the heart. Remember what the the risen Christ said to the church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. He says, And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. One of the things that stands out in the in the first few chapters of Revelation is that the, the risen Lord with his uh, eyes of fire is able to see down into the to the depths of his people's souls. He knows our motivations, our desires, whether or not we're actually coming before him in purity of heart. I remember reading a, a book on prayer by by Doug Kelly a few years ago called "If If God Only Knows Why Pray," and there was a quote that has always stuck out to me, and it's always uh, it's always stayed in my mind. When he's talking about the the necessity to come before God with our whole heart, he, he says this. Do you realize that God knows and really cares whether he has our attention or not? Or whether our eyes are focused on him? Now that, that principle certainly applies when we come to prayer, but it also applies to, to corporate worship and also all of life. It the, the motivations, the desires that we have, they, they matter. And God sees them. God calls upon His people to be uh, those who love Him, not in word only, but also in deed. Uh, we read about in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
Now, Isaiah is able to speak to the people of God and say, you are, you are certainly worshiping God in an external form, but you are not loving your brothers and sisters of the covenant. You are not loving the people of God. Because we read in verses 16 and 17 that they are to cease to do evil, they're to learn to do good, they're to seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Now we, we do know from the scriptures that the mission of the New Testament church is not to correct oppression everywhere that we find it in the world. She's, she's not called nor equipped uh, to bring about that task. But she is called to bring about uh, justice within the church, within the covenant community. She is called to uh, reach out to those who are in need and, and bring about provision. And at times, even at great cost to ourselves, whether it be finances or time. But that's not happening. But rather, they are going through the worship of God externally. And there are people within the covenant community who are suffering greatly. It's amazing as we read the 25th chapter of, of Matthew's gospel, uh, we read about how the Son of Man will return in glory and he'll gather all the nations before him. And there will be the, the two groups. And he says to those on the right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then they will ask, when did we do these things? And he replies, truly, I say, as you did it to the, one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, I hope we, on Reformation Sunday, would not for, for one second think that that means that believers are going to be justified by their works. No. The only way that a believer is going to be justified is by the blood of Christ, by the blood of Christ that has been given to him by grace and faith alone. But what we do see in chapter 25 is that those who have been transformed by the grace of God are going to love the people of God and they're going to interact with them in a way different from the rest of the world. Because we see later on in chapter 25 that those who did not do any of these things, who did not love the people of God, he says, depart from me. Go away into eternal punishment. And so Isaiah has called out to the, the people for their false worship. We've seen that he's spoken about the rebellion the rejection, now let's finally turn to repentance. Isaiah chapter 1, verses, 20, or verses 16 through 20. He says, To wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. We come down now to verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. And he says, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. If you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. The, the two options that are given to the people of God are, you can indeed eat the good of the land. You can be blessed by God 
You can have all this judgment and punishment be taken away, or you can be eaten by the sword. Those are the, the only two options. And as we come to these verses, and we, we question, throughout this entire chapter, we've, we've seen that the people of God are guilty. There's no doubt about it. If, if we're in the court of law, the, the sentence has been given. They are indeed guilty. So how is it that these people are going to be uh, made right? How is it that they're going to be cleansed? We said a little bit earlier that in Deuteronomy chapter 21, the, the rebellious son is to be taken before the elders and executed. Well, we also see that the vocabulary in verses 5 and 6 about bruises and sores and about being smote. That same vocabulary shows up in another place in the book of Isaiah, and it's Isaiah chapter 53 where we read about the servant who's going to be bruised and who's going to be afflicted on behalf of the people of God, how he himself is going to be struck. And it's at the, the cross where we see that Christ himself was, was delivered up, that he, he offered himself up, and that he himself as the willing and obedient son, who never once rebelled, is brought before the elders. And then he is brought to the cross. And as he's on the cross, it is not stones that are going to fall upon his head, but rather the wrath of Almighty God. And so we see at the cross that it is the willing and obedient Son who is going to die on behalf of those who are rebellious and wicked. And the, the beauty of the gospel is that each and every one of us, in and of ourselves, uh, apart from the grace of God, we would neither be obedient nor willing. And yet, because Christ was willing and obedient to the point of death, He has called us into relationship with Himself. He has given us the Holy Spirit that we are both willing, so that we are both willing and obedient to respond to His call to live our lives for Him. And it's through that that He promises, though they are. Like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And the beauty of the gospel is also that whatever the, the filthy rags that we might have, we, as, as the people of God, we know we have them. Whatever they might be, He promises to cleanse us. He promises to take them away. And so that we never have to be the rebellious sons who are executed. So as we close, let us... Serve the Lord with our whole heart, knowing that Christ, that in Christ our sin-stained garments have been cleansed, that He's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit who enables us to be willing and obedient to God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this glorious promise that You have given us in Isaiah chapter 1. And Lord, we know that we need it. Father, we do pray that we would be those who, because of you acting first on our behalf, that we would be willing and obedient. Oh Lord, that we would serve you with our whole heart and that we would worship you, not to try to wrench anything out of your hands, but Lord, out of gratitude to what you have already done for us, of what you have already given. Oh Lord, please continue to be with us, build us up in our faith. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.